0: Section 2 of On Famine Fever by Rudolf Virchow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Part 2. Another peculiarity, however, had meanwhile attracted the attention of medical men. In 1843, Henderson, an Edinburgh doctor, publicly uttered the conviction which till then had silently been gaining ground, namely that besides the enteric typhus and the spotted fever, there was a third typhoid disease, differing from the enteric fever in the absence of all abdominal changes, from the spotted fever in the absence of the eruption, itself being characterized by the peculiarity of sudden relapses after apparent recovery. It received the name of relapsing fever, typhus recurrens. Historical researches have proved that the malady is not by any means a new one, and although it is to be regarded as doubtful whether this form of sickness was known to the ancients and in the Middle Ages, it may be assumed as a fact that it has afflicted Ireland epidemically at intervals since 1739. However that may be, it is rarer by far than the other forms. Beyond and excepting Great Britain and Ireland, Only one great epidemic in Russia, 1864 through 65, and several less considerable ones in Belgium, 1865 through 67, have been as yet described. Since 1855, it has never again reappeared in England or Scotland. Till now, it has never been made perfectly clear what the relations between spotted fever and relapsing fever are it would seem from the observations already made, that many epidemies at the outset inclined principally to relapsing fever, yielding at a later period to spotted fever, and in proportion as the epidemic lasts and increases in strength, the relapsing fever loses ground, leaving spotted fever to stand alone. Relapsing fever being a milder form of disease, the supposition is not far-fetched that it is merely a less malignant degree of the same fever. Trustworthy observers oppose to this the result of their observations, namely that contagion from relapsing fever only produces relapsing fever, and spotted fever only itself again. This excessively nice question is of subordinate importance for us at present, for it changes in little or nothing its relative position to famine. Murchison, who lays a peculiar stress on the distinction between the two, says expressly, Epidemics of relapsing fever come usually with the spotted fever epidemic, always appearing under the influence of want and hunger. Let us now cast a glance at the war fever. What is comprehended under this name may, according to peculiar circumstances, be subdivided into several groups— First in the category comes the dreaded camp fever, Typhus castrensis. In the earliest times, already they were aware of this danger, which frequently brought worse losses in their armies than the bloodiest engagements. It may remain an open question whether the plague which broke out in the naval encampment of the Greeks before Troy assumed just this form. It is very much more probable that it was that malignant camp fever which in the year 395 B.C. raged among the Carthaginians when they were besieging Syracuse under Hamilcar, and of which Diodorus has left us a description. However, the plague which broke out in the army of Ferdinand the Catholic when laying siege to the Moors in Granada in 1490 is now regarded as the first undoubted epidemic of putrid fever. It cut off 17,000 men. The French host suffered still severer losses in 1528 in the camp before Naples, about the same period to which Fra Castoro's classical description of spotted fever in Upper Italy belongs. The French policy of intervention in Italian affairs, which for so many centuries has troubled the fate of that lovely country, met at that time with its first decided check to which camp fever did not a little contribute. 30,000 French succumbed before the pestilence in sight of Naples, amongst whom, their leader Lautrec. It is uncalled for to pursue the history of Camp Fever through the long series of the wars of the Middle Ages and modern times. Let us conclude with a glance at the latest Camp Fever, that before Sebastopol. Typhus first appeared among the Allies in the December of 1854 after its having already taken some dimensions in the Russian army. It very soon found its way to Constantinople and into all the hospitals erected there. In the course of the following summer it almost entirely disappeared. Then again, in the December of 1855, reappeared with greater virulence, spreading this time not only to Constantinople— but likewise to the hospitals of Marseille, Toulon, Avignon, Ney, even to Paris. Odessa, Varna, and the Turkish army in Asia Minor were seized. Jacot, a French army doctor, calculates that in this second epoch of the French army alone, which was 120,000 strong, 10 percent fell sick. The mortality, however, among the cases rose to 50 percent. The Crimean War exemplifies to us that it is not the besiegers alone who are exposed to the typhus, but the besieged as well. There are fortress fevers of a more pestilential sort than are the camp fevers. The plague of Thucydides was such a one. It was engendered within the walls of Athens when the Attic peasantry crowded into the town from all sides, seeking protection from the attacks of the Spartans. During the Napoleonic Wars, There were few of the larger fortresses, in which, during the state of siege, the typhus did not rage. Saragossa, Mayence, Gaeta furnish us examples. Torgau was the scene of one of the most desolating epidemies in 1813. In this little town of 5,100 inhabitants, 8,000 horses and 35,000 men were cooped up together, In the time from the 1st of September, 1813, to the surrender of the place the 10th of January, 1814, 20,435 men died in it, 19,757 being soldiers and 680 burghers. The total of mortality among the citizens in the time from January 1st, 1813, till the end of April, 1814, within 16 months, amounted to 1122, that is to say, to almost a fourth. The same year in Danzig, two-thirds of the French garrison and a third part of the population fell a prey to diseases. But later times have increased the number of typhus forms by giving us the knowledge of a third sort of war typhus, of which the ancients were ignorant, hospital fever, typhus nosocomialis, it was doubtless a great step in human progress when war hospitals were begun to be built, wherein to lodge and nurse wounded and sick soldiers. However, there is no human arrangement but brings some form of suffering along with it, and every onward step is taken amid errors and mistakes. Thus the war hospitals turned to new sources of the typhus, very frequently real hotbeds of contagion sending forth far and near their pestilential breath. After the victories of 1813, our own capital, Berlin, was taught to know what hospital fever is in its worst form. Let us, in conclusion, touch upon ship fever, typhus navalis, once the scourge of the navy, chiefly of the prison ships. Fortunately, it has diminished in proportion as good food and cleanliness have become the rule in warships. We must hope that it will soon be unknown in emigrant vessels. In the majority of cases, camp fever is undoubted spotted fever. In some epidemies only, namely in those in fortresses, it was clearly a question of enteric typhus. As a general rule, we can always assume that camp and famine fever may be regarded from the same point of view. But if this is the case, the question suggests itself. Namely, what resemblance obtains between the incidents of war and famine so as to account for the similarity of effect? This brings us to the question of the grand causes of typhus, which it is all the more encouraging to treat here, as each man may choose for himself instructive points of view. It is at the same time of general value in so far as it offers an excellent example of how clearly and sharply defined modern science stands out as contrasted with the more or less mystic mode of thought of the ancients. The old world referred every unusual appearance to special and divine intervention. Did they believe in many gods? It was then one of those who sent the scourge. Did they believe in one god? It was presumed to be a dispensation from him. Herewith, all research properly so called was at an end. FOR WOULD IT NOT BE AUDACIOUS FOR THE FINITE SPIRIT OF A MORTAL TO DIVINE SOME REASON FOR A DIVINE ACT? HOWEVER TERRIBLE A BURDEN THE PLAGUES WERE TO BEAR WHICH THE DEITIES SENT, THERE WAS NO ALTERNATIVE BUT TO SUBMIT. AT MOST, THEY WERE SUFFERED TO MEDITATE ON THEIR OWN SINFULNESS AND HOPE BY ATONEMENT FOR THE WRONGS COMMITTED TO AVERT THE WRATH OF GOD FROM THEMSELVES AND THEIR FRIENDS. To this the nations of the East added their belief in the stars. Though these were likewise heavenly bodies, raised far above terrestrial vicissitudes, still it was but a step to invest them with a sort of personality, nay even to take them for divine emanations fitted out with miraculous powers. The sun and the sun-god, the moon and the goddess of the moon blended into one. Symbol and idea were no more two but one. Notions of this hazy and therefore intangible sort ruled human thought till far into the Middle Ages. Added to which, as the circle of the experience of nations widened, many peculiar views embracing another class of influences, which, although within the bounds of nature and possibility, still savored of the supernatural. Comets, meteors, earthquakes, and eruptions of burning mountains were carefully noted and closely associated with the outbreaks of pestilential diseases. Thus, although the events were natural, they still retained somewhat of the mystic, the inexplicable about them. And thus also, in addition to the fact of the natural phenomenon, remained likewise the power of ascribing the scourges and afflictions imposed on sinful man to a peculiar and divine providence. I need scarcely remind my readers how popular the use of this formula is at the present day. Amongst the learned likewise, and quite especially amongst the chroniclers of great plagues, there are even yet not a few who first and foremost incline to fall back on comets, earthquakes, and such-like partially unexplained occurrences, instead of busying themselves with the investigation of the proximate causes and effects on and about the persons and circumstances of their patients. This bent to explain the individual occurrence by the whole is deeply rooted in the human mind. The circumstance that the whole may be dark does not deter them from considering this as the most preferable method, being moreover as a rule the least laborious. Here lies the line of demarcation between ancient and modern science though far be it for me to positively wish to dispart isolated occurrences bounded by time and space from preceding or simultaneous, though perhaps distant events, we simply do not start with this reflection. We are not satisfied with merely marveling at the fact as for the rest at something inconceivable, rather to be considered in relation to the whole than to be exactly explained." We prefer to make it our task to follow it up and comprehend it in the time and space in which it begins and ends. Meteors and volcanoes, earthquakes and storms are therefore, generally speaking, not the starting point of our investigations into the causes of disease, and still less so when the diseases appear in places remote from those where orcanes, earthquakes, or volcanoes exercise their power to destroy the soil on which the sickening population dwells, the air they breathe, the water and food they take, their social customs, their domestic life, their homes, their occupations, those are the points to be studied and kept in view while seeking to probe the original causes of a large proportion of the diseases. I do not here pretend to say that it is only the proximate causes that are to be considered, or that appearances in the heavens have no weight into the inquiry into the origin of sickness, even now the newspapers are filled with reports about showers of meteoric stones of an unusual kind. Storms and earthquakes, to such an extent, or in such violence and frequency, have for long not so disquieted the northern portion of our globe as just this winter. Vesuvius is again active, in several places, new islands have arisen from the bosom of the deep. Is all this and the famine fever in Ostpreußen a mere accidental coincidence? Are there no signs of some general connection? Is not the finger of God plainly discernible in this? Far be it from me to assert that chance produces such phenomena with less or more of regularity. contrary I can here very well conceive an internal bearing— however, with this proviso, we are not to imagine that the aforementioned phenomena have an immediate influence on the breeding of disease. One simple consideration gives room for the possibility of a immediate connection. Storms are beyond doubt the results of great inequalities in the distribution of heat over the surface of the earth, and the expression of a straining after equalization in those parts of the atmosphere where inequalities in weight and tension have occurred. Great inequalities in the heat of the surface of the earth have a decided influence on the distribution of the water, on its evaporation, on the atmospheric precipitates, on the high-water mark of rivers and lakes, wells and springs. Again, both the state of the air and that of the water have an effect upon the growth and development of plants, And through them upon men and animals who derive from the vegetable kingdom a material part of their sustenance. They even exercise to a certain extent an immediate influence on the state of health among men and animals, for heat and cold, damp and drought may be in themselves causes of disease. In the same manner, it cannot be denied that the terrestrial body itself may be affected by the unequal distribution of heat and it is in my opinion a question of the highest importance to discover whether earthquakes and volcanic eruptions are not a consequence of one part of the earth being disproportionately overheated and desiccated, others being at the same time in an equal degree chilled and submerged, thus giving rise to unequal contractions and expansions in the outer crust of the earth. We may even go a step further and point out that the distribution of heat over the surface of the earth. Depends on the amount of warmth the latter receives from the sun, and that this amount may in its turn again be determined by many other celestial occurrences, possibly even by showers of meteoric stones, asteroids. the extent of the influence of which has as yet by no means been made clear for myself personally, the inquiry into the connection between epidemic diseases and celestial and terrestrial phenomena is not only admissible but positively necessary. I do not by any means consider it as a matter of indifference that just at present, while our country is afflicted with famine fever, the greater part of those phenomena known in former years of plague are again present and with more than usual force. But nothing strikes me as more remarkable than this other fact, namely that not infrequently do failure of crops and famine start up simultaneously in remote parts of the earth. When in 1770 the famine fever broke out in Germany, a terrible famine prevailed in East India, the result of a bad rice harvest. In Bengal, the most fruitful land on which the sun shines, the mortality became in consequence so great that the number of deaths was reckoned at three millions, a third of the entire population. While the scarcity in the northern countries of Europe was a consequence of a succession of cold, wet weather, a continuous drought and heat had killed vegetation in the Indies. And is not that very striking? Let us recall likewise that the succession of cold, wet seasons that have now brought us distress and disease— were preceded by a famine in East India, to master which neither the practical genius of the English nation nor her inexhaustible resources sufficed. Again, it is quite to the point that while in Ostpreußen we had scarcity and dearth, a consequence of falls of rain and inundations, in the subtropic countries on the other coast of the Mediterranean, Morocco, Algiers, and Tunis, people were dying by thousands of starvation. That is quite intelligible. But it is just as intelligible that we cannot meet such crises with religious observances. A wise and joint foresight is only practicable by extending the network of scientific observations. We are proud of being able to read now every morning in our papers the state of the weather in a couple of dozen of European places— Our agricultural society think they do no small service when, after the respective seasons, they can sum up the weather that a few neighboring European countries and North America have had for seed time and harvest. This is but a beginning of what must be. With the cooperation of meteorology, agriculture, trade, and medicine, and with the aid of an increased number of stations for scientific observation over the whole face of the earth, such as Alexander von Humboldt has already instituted for a limited purpose, it will in future be possible to descry and avert the coming evils of starvation and sickness, or at least, when this is not practicable, to mitigate their effects. To this few are opposed to others in as far as Typhus is concerned at least. A few who still incline to the older notion of the celestial origin of plagues, are disposed to accuse wind and weather as principal agents. I am far from being inclined to rate their influence low, as I think I have already shown in my picture of the typhus in Upper Silesia, and here I wish to impress the striking fact that in simultaneous cases of dearth in wet and dry regions, only those in the wet are exposed to famine fever. In Bengal in 1770, this malady was unknown, notwithstanding the widespread distress, while in North Germany it prevailed everywhere. Now, the harvests had failed in India for reason of heat and drought, and in Europe by reason of cold and wet. Here, then, it is a point to be noted weather alone does not produce typhus. Were this the case, we should be very powerless to succor, for who can change the wind and weather? or protect outdoor workers from their effects. Fortunately, there is no air the wind can blow, and no weather either which can of themselves breed typhus. That they both bear a powerful part in inducing the conditions favorable to the vivifying of typhus germs, and likewise aid the beginnings and spread of typhus itself, cannot only not be doubted, and can be deduced from what has already been said." However, it is one thing to aid in creating the conditions, and another being the conditions themselves. This point has been discussed by me more at length in a former work. End of section two.